Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, August 3rd, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 48, verses 11 to 47. Today's text is the conclusion of the Lord's word to the Moabites, though his word of judgment does not stop him from also proclaiming his word of promise. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sam Wergau. Pastor Wergau serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Oh, great to be with you. So let's talk a little context, Pastor Wergau. We're picking up in the middle of this oracle to or against the Moabites uh, in a larger portion of Jeremiah that deals with oracles against nations. Uh, what have we seen in terms of the larger section of Jeremiah and in terms of what's going on here, particularly with Moab, that we need to know for this part of the chapter today. Right, exactly. And I know when we talk about the context of Jeremiah, we really see uh, part of Jeremiah's prophecy to Israel and to Ju- Judah is the fact that they're surrounded by all these other seemingly greater nations, at least by military strength or, or, or size or populace. Uh, and and that really does play into this, this whole prophecy about how the Lord is working in this place and in this time. Uh, which then also relates to to Moab and to the other foreign nations that are surrounding them. Uh, I think kind of in chapter 25, you got a peek at this uh, in which the Lord is is laying out the prophecy against all these nations kind of in, in, in overarching in generality uh, when he says in 25, 15, and 16, uh, the Lord God of Israel, uh, take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send it send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So this speaking more generally, and we'll see actually this theme of uh, drinking the wrath, the cup of the wine of wrath comes up even more specific. So then what you have with these oracles, which which I guess began in, in verse uh, 46 with Egypt and then uh, the Philistines and now with Moab is, is a very specific word uh, of judgment uh, against these nations. And I think we, we should pay particular attention to to why the Lord is speaking this word of, of judgment, uh, why these harsh words uh, that the Lord speaks concerning Moab uh, or concerning any of these nations. And we'll see that it really does kind of boil down to uh, the sense that as as, as uh, mighty as these nations are, as prosperous as they were, uh, what they're missing ultimately is uh, faith in the only true God, in, in Yahweh and in the promise of the Messiah, by which then these um uh, condemnations come down to the, these judgments come down and, and the specific false God uh, uh, is for, for Moab, uh, of course, is mentioned here with, uh, I guess you pronounce it uh, Chemosh or Chemosh. Uh, uh, and that'll come up again. And here we'll see in a little bit. So kind of good to keep that in mind. Uh, we get to the reason why, because this will be a little lengthy as we kind of go through these, but it's important to pick out the details and to kind of dig into these. But, but the overarching understanding of, of why? Why? Why is what's wrong with Moab that would cause us that would cause the Lord to speak these words of, of judgment against them? 
I think that why question is very important for this chapter and these surrounding chapters, these judgments against the nations, because, you know, we're very used to the Lord speaking to Judah and to Israel in the Old Testament. And then these foreign nations, they're the enemies. They're the, quote, bad guys. Why is the Lord bothering with them? And and, and even deeper, why, you know, they're worshiping false gods, but the Lord still loves them. He Mm -hmm. cares about them. They are people he created and and people for whom he will send his son. And and we're going to get a, a specific mention toward that, the mercy that the Lord does intend, even for these Moabites as well. And so that, that why I think is really important as we go through a chapter like this and, and this whole section where we're going to be reading names that are hard to pronounce. And we're going to be talking about places that we don't always know exactly where they are. Why are we reading this? Well, that why of the Lord's love for his entire creation, including these foreign nations, that's a, that's a really big thing we want to, pick on to or hold on to and pick up from a text like this. In, in terms of context of Moab, we talked a little bit about this yesterday when we introduced this oracle. Uh, remind us a little bit of, of who Moab is and, and their relationship to Israel throughout the Old Testament. Yeah, so Moab at this time, of course, is in particular is, is positioned located uh, east of the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. Um, uh, a pretty formidable nation at the time uh, uh, that Jeremiah prophesies. Uh, we'll see they here. They have military might. They have vineyards. They have they have economic and uh, military uh, securities. Uh, but if you even go back farther, uh, we know the Moabites are the descendants of, of Lot in Genesis 19. So they have those deep roots with Abraham uh, and with uh, um, uh, the people of God. Uh, but as with the case with all these other foreign nations, um, as they, they they stem out farther away from God's chosen people, uh, the the issue that comes up with this with this uh, spread and and this uh, is the taking on of false gods, of false faith, uh, and so even at the time of the uh, the Exodus and the time of uh, the, in the Pentateuch of Israel's wandering uh, and before they reach the Promised Land, we see this history. Uh, in, in Numbers 22 and 24, for example, with Balaam and the curse of Israel, this history of enmity and strife uh, that, that the people of Israel have with, with Moab, uh, with this nation of Moab. Uh, and, and this has kind of continued even through to what we have, have here in, in Jeremiah, that there, there is this, and, and Isaiah picks up on this uh, as well. Um, and uh, so, so this understanding that there, there is this... Um, Enmity, this uh, the strife, this uh, the hostility between these two nations, uh, and and how that then also relates to um, the, the prophecy of Jeremiah here as well. So we're going to jump right into the rest of the text to Moab. Again, we're starting today at Jeremiah forty-eight, verse eleven. Moab has been at ease from his youth and has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. So his taste remains in him, and his scent is not changed. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall send to him pourers who will pour him, and empty his vessels and break his jar in pieces. Then Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. How do you say we are heroes and mighty men of war? The destroyer of Moab and his cities has come up. And the choicest of his young men have gone down to slaughter, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. The calamity of Moab is near at hand, and his affliction hastens swiftly. Grieve for him, all you who are around him, and all who know his name. 
Say how the mighty scepter is broken, the glorious staff. Come down from your glory and sit on the parched ground, O inhabitant of Dibon. For the destroyer of Moab has come up against you. He has destroyed your strongholds. Stand by the way and watch, O inhabitant of Aror. Ask him who flees and her who escapes. Say what has happened. Moab is put to shame, for it is broken. Wail and cry. Tell it beside the Arnon that Moab is laid waste. Judgment has come upon the tableland, upon Holon, and Jaza, and Mephoth, and Dibon, and Nebo, and Beth Diblathiam, and Kiriathiam, and Beth Gamul, and Beth Maon, and Kerioth, and Basra, and all the cities of the land of Moab, far and near. The horn of Moab is cut off, and his arm is broken, declares the Lord. Make him drunk, because he magnified himself against the Lord, so that Moab shall wallow in his vomit, and he too shall be held in derision. Was not Israel a derision to you? Was he found among thieves, that whenever you spoke of him you wagged your head? Leave the cities and dwell in the rock, O inhabitants of Moab. Be like the dove that nests in the sides of the mouth of a gorge. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his loftiness, his pride and his arrogance, and the haughtiness of his heart. I know his insolence, declares the Lord. His boasts are false. His deeds are false. Therefore I wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab. For the men of Kir Harasheth I mourn. More than for Jazer I weep for you, O vine of Sibma. Your branches passed over the sea, reached to the sea of Jazer. On your summer fruits and your grapes the destroyer has fallen. Gladness and joy have been taken away from the fruitful land of Moab. I have made the wine cease from the wine presses. No one treads them with shouts of joy. The shouting is not the shout of joy. That's through verse 33 of Jeremiah 48. We'll pause there. Pastor Worga, there's lots that we can talk about here, but there are there are some repeated themes that I think we can see. Just to get us started into that that first verse, verse 11 of our text, Moab has been at ease from his youth. And I think that ties in a little bit to the pride and arrogance that's going on. Yesterday, we talked a little bit about the historical setting for this oracle, and it's a little harder to pin down. But we know that, you know, these smaller nations are kind of sandwiched between Babylon and Egypt. And Babylon particularly is coming in and and exerting its power in this area of the world. But with Moab, it, it seems that maybe they they missed out on some of the the suffering that say Judah and the Philistines suffered at the hands of Moab. It sounds like Moab maybe had a, a bit easier time, at least for a while. Yeah, it seems like that. And I think that's partially, uh, some commentators note that this is partially because of their geographical situation. So they had the sea on their west and desert on the east and, and kind of were in a more mountainous uh, characteristic of its territory. Uh, therefore, they were not as susceptible to invasion. They weren't obviously free from that. Uh, and they had kind of built up in their uh, security uh, this uh, strong nation, uh, like I said, economically and uh, uh, militarily. They they had uh, strong armies. They had uh, uh, comforts and securities. Uh, and and what uh, Jeremiah points out here, the Lord points out through Jeremiah, is that it's really a false sense of security uh, that they do have. So since although they had been uh, you know f- uh, spared for a time. Uh, which will end from uh, invasion uh, from these uh, greater nations 
coming in and taking them over. Uh, that won't that won't last. Uh, and and I think it comes out really nicely, and especially in the first few verses when he talks about uh, that that Jeremiah is at ease. So this idea of this pride, this uh, contentment, uh, this the security that they've had because. Uh, they haven't been poured from one vessel to another. And the idea of the settling of the dregs. So this is what happens if you leave uh, wine or you leave something uh, you know, in a bottle for a while, the, the sediments or the, the, the pieces fall down to the bottom, so the dregs of it. But the idea here is that they're going to be uh, uh, poured out uh, and they're going to be emptied. And then actually it goes even further. It's kind of like, it's the way Hebrew kind of works in these prophecies. You have one step and then another, and then another, and not only are they going to be poured out, but the vessels themselves are going to be broken. So this kind of utter defeat of Moab. And, and what all this ultimately is, is the ultimately breaking of their false sense of security that they have. Uh, because as much as what that false sense of security on the surface is, there's a deeper issue that we're dealing with with Moab, and that is their uh, the problem of their false god. Uh, and 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 Jeremiah na- names it, and I love it. It's just it's great. He he just calls it out with this idea of Chemish, uh, uh, and that they're going to actually be ashamed of this false god who they had believed and trusted had brought their nation such success and such security, uh, and they're going to be ashamed of it even as uh, the house of Israel was ashamed at Bethel. That is, uh, this brings up another thing that needs to be pointed out for uh, Moab wasn't the only one who had taken security in this false god uh, that uh, Israel itself had, as they had taken on many false worship, false worships of false gods, uh, Israel itself is, has been influenced by this. Uh, that's what the, the idea when it says, uh, Moab shall be ashamed of Chemish as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, Bethel being that place uh, where uh, Israel worshipped uh, false gods. Uh, for example, in 1 Kings 11, 7 uh, points this out. That that progression there that, that you pointed out in terms of the, the vessel, you know, being emptied and poured out and, and ultimately smashed. I mean, there's there's imagery elsewhere in the book of Jeremiah that he preaches to God's people, Judah, that deal with those same matters all the way back in, in chapter two. He he called his people, you know, broken cisterns. They'd been emptied of their water. They can't hold any water. Mm-hmm. And, and in Jeremiah chapter 19, Jeremiah, one of the, the action prophecies that the Lord gives him is to break a, a piece of pottery, a flask, a jug within their sight. I mean, so it's, 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 I think, important to see how those same images go from the people of God in Judah, also to these foreign nations, that the, the preaching that is being given in both places, though, though to different people, is this is the same word of the Lord that's that's coming. And I think that you know, the imagery of, of liquid being poured out and, and wine that's going to be drunk eventually, that's going to be something we're going to pick up again mm-hmm. as the as the text continues. So, I mean, it's just, I, I think it's, it's very it's important that we see those continued images in the book of Jeremiah. This is the same Lord who's speaking through the same prophet to even these, these foreign nations. Now, Pastor, Pastor Ergao is the, the text continues into oh, about verses 16 and, and following. Uh, there's, there's again, several things that, that we can pick up. Uh, one, we start to see a theme that will show up several times is that, so for example, verse 17, grieve for him, this matter of a, a mourning that the, when the Lord, proclaims judgment even against these foreign nations there's a a grief that happens uh, from the prophet from the lord and certainly from those around and i think that's going to be important as we'll see the text move toward even a gospel proclamation toward the end 
Yeah, no, that's very important to understand. And this really does get to the nature of, of who Yahweh is and, and who God is and why he sends forth these oracles and these judgments. Um, he is not one that um, willingly afflicts, you know, he's not one who takes delight in the destruction of Moab or in the destruction of, 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 of people. Uh, but it is, um, uh, it is always his desire to save. Uh, and we often talk about this, and I think we'll bring this up a little bit more in just a little bit, but uh, uh, between God's alien and proper work, uh, that is, uh, his work of, of judgment and condemnation uh, is, is necessary, but the ultimate uh, purpose for which God sets forth his word of law and his word of judgment is for the purpose of preaching uh, the promise and salvation. Uh, that's why God preaches his law. The end is not in the law. The end is supposed to be uh, the desire of Christ is to save. Uh, the desire of God is to save through Christ. So so it, it sounds kind of odd when you're going through this, because I think we we tend to get into our minds a sense of of the Old Testament uh, Yahweh or the Old Testament God as the God of judgment, as the God who is the mean God who who destroys these nations and and that's that's it and that you're not seeing God properly for who He is. Then uh, we can even make God into kind of this xenophobic sort of uh, you know de destroyer willy nilly of anybody that He doesn't get along with kind of thing, right? Uh, when that's not the case at all. Uh, God God is just and and Moab deserves the the judgment and the uh the the condemnation of this oracle they're getting what they deserve for sure uh but god's always looking forward yahweh's always looking forward to to that promise and to the that his people will turn from their evil ways and and live and so it is something that he would say all of this judgment is coming down and then to have in 17 this imperative grieve then don't take delight in this don't take delight in the destruction of moab i mean we as humans love to see the the, we love an underdog and we love to see the, uh, the, the big ones totter and fall, right? I mean, we take special you know, uh, pleasure in that, but that's not the pleasure of the Lord. Uh, the Lord is looking for uh, the redemption uh, and the salvation of all people that all turn from their evil ways and live. I mean, this comes out in Jonah. We all know the familiar story of Jonah in that regard, right? Where he goes to the great city of Nineveh uh, to preach to them that they're going to be destroyed for their sins. And when they do turn and when they do repent and God does not destroy the city, uh, we know that Jonah's reaction is one that is a human reaction, a sinful reaction, in that he does not rejoice in the repentance. But it is God who rejoices in the repentance and that uh, that the nations be saved. Right. Yeah. And that that how the Lord rejoices in his people's repentance and how he intends that repentance from these nations is, I mean, it's evident there already in verse 17. And, and as we, we read already through say verse 31, where, you know, therefore I wail for Moab, I cry out for Moab and verse 32, I weep for you. I mean, I think we could understand that, that I there being Jeremiah, but also the Lord mm -hmm. that, that Jeremiah is weeping for the people to whom he's preached because he does that for the people of Judah as well. And it seems he's doing it here for the people of Moab also. That weeping of Jeremiah, that's a, a picture of the Lord's own sorrow at you know doing what I think is, and I, did you say this already? If, if not, you, you probably will. His alien work yeah. of of proclaiming the, the law. I know we've talked about that several times here on Sharper Iron mm -hmm. in the book of Jeremiah, but it's worth bringing up here again, I think as well. For sure, yeah. No, the, for sure, yeah. God, we, we distinguish between God's alien work and his proper work, right? And that... Uh, 
And this is really to hold up uh, the nature of God as love. And this is how we we distinguish law and gospel and how we can hold up a just God and a saving God, right? Uh, and that he doesn't forget the law and that he must punish for sin uh, because he is immutable, right? He doesn't change his mind. But on the same uh, on, on the same wavelength or the same understanding that we don't hold up law and gospel is just I hate to say it like two equal things, right? That the gospel predominates and that uh, predominates and that the, the proper work of God is to save so that God in his very nature is love, uh, does grieve the death of sinners, does grieve that his people turn from him uh, or that any human that he has, cre- has been created in the image of God would reject that God. Pastor Wargau, as the as we keep moving into the text, we get some of the place names. There's a, a long list in verses 21 and following, one after another, where there's maybe not as much to say about those, but some of the ones that are mentioned prior to that, for example, Dibon, Aror, Arnon, we know a little bit about these places. Uh, what are these places that Jeremiah mentions there and, and what's being said about them here in chapter 48? Yeah, Dibon in particular is kind of, we talk about as kind of the royal city, um, and it would really kind of stand as a representative of the entire nation. So a lot of times when you say like, uh, I guess we kind of use this in our in our sense of American context, you know, D.C., right, Washington, the nation's capital, right, kind of can stand for 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 the whole of the nation, uh, or or you know something comes out of, uh, for example, I'm in Indiana, so something comes out of Indianapolis or comes out of the state capital, it's speaking for the whole of the nation, and so so when we're talking here about uh, Debon, it it is this sense that um, <laughs> what what God is speaking, when Jeremiah is speaking particularly about the inhabitants of Dibon, we'll see relates specifically to them, but also is representative of the, the entire nation. And that's, I think, why kind of he sets out, uh, at least in our section, that kind of it's off the beginning to talk about Dibon itself. Uh, and then it goes into um, uh, another city, uh, uh, Aurora, uh, um, and they're told to stand by the way. And I think that's interesting because we kind of glance over that, to stand by the way uh, some commentators will point out likely this is the the king's highway. Uh, this is mentioned, for example, in Numbers twenty. So it's this idea that this was a, a, a city on a, on a thoroughfare or a major highway kind of thing. And the idea here is that they would be standing uh, uh, in seeing the uh, the refugees coming out of of, of Dibon and uh, mm-hmm. uh, seeing the evidence, the fruits, I guess, of the destruction of Moab's destruction, uh, and that. Those refugees, those ones coming out of this were a testament to what's going on. You know things are not good because of the flight from from the city. And then in verse one more to pick up there geographically, verse twenty, the the Arnon that's a that's a river of Moab, right? Right. right. Yeah. So again, another river would have been a, a, a another place of, of commerce or another place of uh, uh, that that this word would then spread. So that's another uh, river that ran uh, through Moab, uh, probably a very important uh, geographical feature, economic feature, so on and so forth. And so again, so you have these three kind of big things in in, in eighteen and in. Uh, through 20, uh, you have the Dibon, you have the, uh, so the capital city, you have the Aurora, uh, which is kind of, you know, kind of on that major highway. And then you have the, 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 the city or the river, I'm sorry, uh, the Arnon, uh, and all of those are, again, the reason they're pointed out is they're giving testament, giving, uh, uh, evidence of, of the utter destruction of Moab. And so those three big ones are mentioned. And then when you get into 21 through 24, you kind of just have these, 
this list of, of, of these names. And of course, we're not familiar with, the, most people aren't familiar with uh, many, if any of these names. Uh, but the point being here is that Jeremiah's audience would be, right? Uh, and, and, and this is kind of like in our context, if you were talking about the destruction of America, this would be, you know, so say to uh, Washington, D.C., or say to Chicago, or New York, or Seattle, and, and, and all of these things are just naming that, that not only is it the entire nation, but it's these specific cities uh, that are facing, cities in the land of Moab that are facing uh, this uh, utter destruction of, of, of the nation. Hmm. Right. So, so, you know, you, you could name all the towns around Ozzie and Indiana or in your, in your County there in Indiana, I might not know what they are, right. but your hearers would know. And, and similarly, exactly. I could do the same with, with the cities and the communities in Bastrop County here in Texas. And, and again, so something similar here with the listing of these cities in the, the land of Moab, all of whom are receiving judgment. That's the, the way that this leads out. And then it, the image that's used is that the horn of Moab is cut off and his arm is broken. So why why is judgment against the horn of Moab and his arm? What are those two images? Yeah, uh, so we don't use that. We, we hear that in scripture. So I think we kind of get a sense that this sounds familiar, that we have this understanding of horn and an arm. Uh, but, but that's really, uh, there are ways of talking about the strength, uh, of a nation and, and scripture uses it elsewhere. Uh, for example, I, I think we're very familiar with Luke, with, with Luke, uh, uh, 169, uh, where it says, um, uh, he has, uh, is that the one where he has shown strength with his arm? Uh, he has gathered the proud in the imagination of their heart. Yeah. That's uh, in the Magnificat. The Magnificat. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then also, uh, uh, raising up the horn of salvation, which is in the, the Benedictus who raised up a horn of salvation. So it's the idea that, that these are the, the, the power, the might, another one that comes up, this is used often in the old Testament. When we're talking about the, the mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The Lord delivered his people from the great nation of, of, of Egypt out of bondage in Egypt. Uh, so we're always talking about uh, the strength, but like in the Luke 169, uh, or in this, for example, Psalm 136 uses it as well. It's always talking about the strength of the Lord. The Lord's strength is described as a horn or as a mighty arm or an outstretched uh, uh, hand or outstretched mighty hand or an outstretched arm. Uh, that's one way of talking about strength. And then when you use that same word, when you're talking about the strength of Moab, we see here that it's talking about their their horn being, they're cut off and the arm broken, right? So that ultimately their strength fails, whatever they have their strength in, whether it's their army or their economic strength or, or what have you, that ultimately gives way uh, and that ultimately will fail. Uh, whereas when we talk about the the horn of the uh, of God or the the mighty arm of God, that is what uh, indoors, uh, forever. Yeah. The Lord, the Lord breaks the strength of Moab all toward the end of bringing them to trust in his strength, which we will see as this text continues, but we need to take our break here on sharper iron. You're listening to pastor Sam workout. Help us with Jeremiah chapter 48 this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, August 3rd. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 48, verses 11 through 47 with Pastor Sam Wergau. He's the pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, prior to the break, we left off after verse 25 of chapter 48. In chapter, in verse 26, excuse me, the prophet brings up, make him drunk. We, we talked a little bit about this with the pouring out the, the image of liquids earlier. Uh, what is this, this image, this picture of making him drunk that Jeremiah uses here? And how else do we see it in scripture? Right. I mean, I think this is a, a theme you see kind of come about in scripture, uh, but it might seem a little foreign to us. Um, we're not exactly familiar with this in our, our common um, uh, speech. Uh, but the idea of this image of drunkenness uh, was already used in Jeremiah in thirteen, in chapter thirteen and twenty-five, which I mentioned at the beginning of the program. Um, it's used in Isaiah as well in Isaiah fifty-one seventeen. Uh, we always want to understand this idea of being made drunk, or or, or this idea of uh, God making one drunk, uh, not literally speaking of 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 uh, of a. Uh, you know, being drunk off of wine uh, or what have you, but this idea of the wrath of God being poured out upon his people, uh, this idea of drinking the dregs uh, or, or or becoming drunk with the dregs is a common way of understanding uh, God, ultimately what comes down to the imagery of God's wrath upon his people. Uh, and I mean, it kind of helps to build this because all this imagery and language is, is directing us towards this understanding of uh, well, when you're made drunk, uh, you're not in a good state, uh, and you're not able to, you know, think clearly to do things right, and uh, uh, that's what God's wrath does. Uh, that's what, what when they face this, they're not in a good in a good state. Uh, so this is a common one, and I think then it does find its way too into the New Testament and um, relates intimately to to Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Because we know this, we know this language when he says before his betrayal and arrest, and he prays like in Luke twenty two forty two, for example, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, why is he talking about this cup? Why is Jesus talking about this 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 cup? What does he mean? And we know it means his crucifixion, but not simply this idea of that he was going to be killed on a cross, but that God's very wrath was to be poured out on Jesus as our substitute for sin. Uh, and so um, uh, here we see in part that the, this understanding of, uh, I think it draws us to a head here when we're talking about what is the destruction of Moab ultimately. And it, it's not that they are you know, the victims of, of uh, tragic circumstance, but they're getting the due reward for their sins, that this is ultimately God's wrath for their, again, ultimately their rejection of him as God, and they're going after other gods, first commandment kind of thing here. Well, I think that first commandment thing comes comes into clear view here as, as the text continues, particularly into verse 29, where the pride of Moab is mentioned, such that, you know, we've heard of the pride of Moab, he's very proud, and then you get all of these synonyms for that pride, you know, loftiness, pride again, arrogance, haughtiness of his heart. And I find it, I, th- I think it's important to see that, you know, we did hear of the false god, Chemosh, earlier, and, and he was in yesterday's text as well. Mm-hmm. But here, when the first commandment comes back, Chemosh isn't in view, such that, which I think is, is a helpful reminder for us that, you know, when it comes to the first commandment for us today, we may not have that little idol or whatever Chemosh would have been for these, these people of Moab. We might not have that little statue that we're bowing down to, but pride and the way that that leads us to break the first commandment, that's still a big issue for us today, just like it was for Moab. Right, exactly. And I mean, that's our proper understanding of what a 
uh, false god is um, and, and how Luther draws this out in both the small and the large catechism. So the small catechism, you shall have no other gods. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. You know, So not only external things, but also internal things. We should fear, love, and trust in God more than, than ourselves. And that ultimately any breaking of the commandments is to place our fear, love, and trust in something other than God and his word. Uh, and, and and rightly to, to define what a God is, is a God is whatever we fear, love, or trust more than God, more than the true God. Uh, and so that does, yeah, that does intimately relate then to when we talk about pride, right? Because it's, it's what is pride, but it is loving uh, and, and uh, trusting in, in oneself and, and thinking oneself higher uh, than one ought to think it. And the opposite of pride being, you know, humility uh, is to understand properly who you are. And that's ultimately what God is showing forth, right? And breaking uh, the, the pride and the false God of Moab, not just in Chemosh, but in Moab's own uh, pride or arrogance or um, uh, uh, haughtiness that they have even in their own hearts that they've built up. Because uh, this is the way of sinful man. Uh, we use the term you know, that uh, man is turned in upon himself. Incarvatus est uh, is the Latin. And, and that is ultimately our sinful condition that we're always looking to ourselves uh, in our own, uh, uh, making ourselves into our own, own gods. We touched on the matter earlier about, you know, the Lord Jeremiah, both a wail for Moab. We see a picture that the Lord does not delight in the death of the sinner, but he desires repentance, which that theme is going to come out as we move forward in the text in just a few minutes here. But but looking forward, then after the, the Lord's weeping and, and wailing there, we see some of the destruction. And, and verses 32 and 33 give a, a very a picture of the destruction is going to be agricultural in nature, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is kind of interesting tying it into what we've already kind of talked about with uh, uh, being drunk or, or settling the dregs of the vessels. But here, very literally, we're talking about the vineyards, right? Uh, the vineyards uh, are uh, have often been described as very expansive and fruitful. Um, so God had, in a sense, blessed this land with expansive and fruitful produce. Uh, they had rich grape harvests, good economical strength, uh, and that had been protected. Uh, and, and God does lay out through Jeremiah the idea that this is coming to an end um, and that this is um, that the joy that they would have had in their uh, harvest, uh, fruit harvest, uh, will be turned into um, uh, uh, tragedy. And, and, and very interesting in 33, especially when it talks about uh, this this um, gladness and joy being taken away from the fruitful land of Moab. So the idea that that it's not going to be a fruitful land agriculturally anymore, um, because the wine will cease from the wine presses. So you think about how, and, and I think this does relate to to how we take, and I mean we generally here take such great confidence and 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 uh, security in, in economic and uh, agricultural or or, or uh, manufacturing and, and all these kind of things where we find our security in these things and how quickly those things which are gifts from God can be reversed and can be taken away uh, you know I, I I'm uh, Bethlehem's out in the corn and the soybean fields and and it doesn't take much uh, to, for, for, for a, a crop to fail. Right. And I mean, um, and this was the case when I was down in Texas too. I mean, it, it takes just the right kind of weather, just going the wrong kind of way. And suddenly 
you are uh, you're you're out of luck. <laughs> I mean, you, you're you're lost, and and more so even here with Moab is the idea that they had a could say they took a lot of strength in their vineyards and in their economical strength in the fruitful agricultural earth. And, and those are a gift from God, uh, that he's the one who gives these things as scripture talks about throughout. But the idea how God's judgment falls right on that too, that they can't take their strength in in the gift over the giver and that they're suddenly left then with uh, without that production of wine, the wine presses ceased. And then even worse, again, this is the idea that we see this in Hebrew where it's just like kind of uh, escalates on top of each other, that the shouting is not uh, uh, no one treads them with shouts of joy. And that's often uh, attributed to the shouts of joy being the uh, the joy that you have in in the wine press and the treading of the grapes and a fruitful harvest, but the sh- there's going to be shouting, but it's not no longer the shout of joy. Hmm. Right? Yeah, it's a very very vivid image, and and, and as you said, one that we can understand, in, especially in, in the more rural areas. At, you know, think of the joy of the harvest, and and yet the great tragedy when that harvest is lost, at, as you said, so so easily. Here we know this isn't just an accident of it was bad weather, this is the Lord's judgment that's coming upon Moab. And we need to read the rest of the chapter to see how else the Lord is going to bring judgment. And yet, we're going to hear that promise coming up toward the end. So we're picking up the text again, Jeremiah 48, now at verse 34. From the outcry at Heshbon, even to Elela, as far as Jahaz, they utter their voice from Zor to Horonaim and Egleth Shalishayah, for the waters of Nimrim also have become desolate. And I will bring to an end in Moab, declares the Lord, him who offers sacrifice in the high place and makes offerings to his God. Therefore, my heart moans for Moab like a flute, and my heart moans like a flute for the men of Kir Harsheth. Therefore, the riches they have gained have perished. For every head is shaved and every beard cut off. On all the hands are gashes, and around the waist is sackcloth. On all the housetops of Moab and in the squares there is nothing but lamentation. For I have broken Moab like a vessel, for which no one cares, declares the Lord. How it is broken, how they wail, how Moab has turned his back in shame. So Moab has become a derision and a horror to all that are around him. For thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Moab. The cities shall be taken and the strongholds seized. The heart of the warriors of Moab shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. Moab shall be destroyed and be no longer a people, because he magnified himself against the Lord. Terror, pit, and snare are before you, O inhabitant of Moab, declares the Lord. He who flees from the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For I will bring these things upon Moab, the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the shadow of Heshbon, fugitives stop without strength, for fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the house of Sihon. It has destroyed the forehead of Moab, the crown of the sons of Tumult. Woe to you, O Moab! The people of Chemosh are undone, for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters into captivity. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far is the judgment on Moab. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Jeremiah 48, verses 34 to 47. So in those first couple of uh, verses there, Pastor Wargau, we got a few more cities mentioned, this outcry coming. And again, Jeremiah brings it back to the fact that they're making offerings to this false god. Yeah. And you're doing a fabulous job naming all those names. I know it's not an easy <laughs> task sometimes going, and it's always fun in Bible class when you 
if you're doing like a reading around the table and you, <laughs> people get some words. And yes, yeah. That's right. <laughs> but no, fabulous. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, again, this is kind of talking about the large geographical extent. Again, we're naming specific cities. We're naming the extent of the destruction by naming these specific cities. Uh, but, but you're going to get, you get to the, the desire of the heart uh, 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 of the Lord, but, but the heart of the problem, I should say, is what, what we're dealing with here. And that is, this is, uh, Moab's false gods, uh, which the Lord declares he's going to bring to an end by desolation and destruction. Um, those who offer sacrifices in the high places and make offerings to his God, right? That those are going to be broken down and ultimately shown to be useless. Um, and so the idolatry really will will cease because the people won't be, these areas won't be populated anymore, right? I mean, it's ultimately what it comes down to. But again, you have the emotional response of the Lord, uh, that his heart moans. But but I think also what we see here, especially in verses 37 uh, and 38, um, is, is a sense of contrition. Um, so you have this understanding that, uh, that every head is shaved, every beard cut, the hands are gashed, and the waist, uh, and, and around the waist is sackcloth common imageries of repentance or contrition, but however, I, I think you do see um, hints in here that, that the Lord is still sorrowful about this emotional, you know, this, this response uh, because their repentance, I don't believe is really yet true repentance. That is, it's not repentance. That's a turning from their false gods to, to the true God. To, it's not repentance. Isn't directed to Yahweh. Uh, in fact, I think you really have a sense of that when you have this understanding that their hands are gashed. Uh, because an act of contrition representative in pagan uh, culture and pagan religion was the cutting of the hands or the cutting of the flesh, which is um, uh, prohibited in Leviticus 19, where it says, do not make the gashes or the cuts. Do not cut yourself. That, that, that was not, that's not the way that, that, that the people of Israel would have show repentance. Uh, and so I think there's something behind that, that we see Israel being, or not Israel, Moab being sorry for, the, for, for this and seeing the destruction. But the point is, is not that they feel bad because their city is destroyed. The point is, is that they turn to Yahweh, that they turn to the Lord and trust in his mercy and his deliverance. I think that's a really good point. We we saw some of this similar a- actions of mourning in the text with the Philistines. They they also were they talked about the baldness there mm-hmm. and the matter of of gashing and and yesterday we talked a little bit about the reminder that you see in 1 Kings 18 the prophets of Baal are the ones that are mm-hmm. cutting themselves trying to get their god's attention in a, you know in a false way as you said not a way that the Israelites would have done. But but I think what you're, what you're saying is this is a really important point that you know there's they're upset over what's happening. They're mourning over what's happening to them. They don't yet know why, and maybe maybe one way we can think about it theologically is the way Paul talks in Second Corinthians, I think it's chapter seven, where he compares the the worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow, that the the worldly sorrow leads to death, but the godly sorrow leads to repentance. And and at this point in the text, the Moabites have this worldly sorrow. They they know something's wrong, and they're mourning over it, but they don't know what to do with that. And, and that's where a text like this, where Jeremiah comes along and preaches this to Moab, while it's full of the Lord's judgment against them, you really see his grace because what, what the Lord is doing in, in giving these words to Jeremiah to preach is he's revealing to Moab what's really going on. It's it's not, again, it's not just this chance of history, but this is the Lord active 
bringing judgment against sin with the purpose of bringing repentance. And it, it's almost like, you know, here, here's Moab mourning with all these pagan ways of mourning. And along comes Jeremiah preaching like St. Paul does in the city of Athens, you know, where he says, you know, you're worshiping this unknown God. Let me tell you about who the real God is. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah is almost like a similar situation with Moab. You guys are mourning. You don't know what's really going on. Let me tell you what the Lord, the true God is up to yeah. so that you can be brought to repentance and faith in him. Right, exactly. Yeah, I couldn't set it better myself. That's that's exactly right. Um, we, we need to keep that in our minds that, that, that again, this is, comes down to that alien and that proper work of God, right? Why is he destroying these cities? It's not just because he, you know, is uh, uh, happy seeing the destruction of nations. It's not It's not that. Uh, it's that that people would turn and trust in, in the Lord, that they would turn and trust in him. And ultimately, uh, again, get into the root of the problem here, uh, trust in him for their their salvation. Uh, this is all pointing us to Christ, which we really see explicitly in 47, but even, you know, all of this is kind of leading up to this understanding that uh, when we talk about repentance as a turning, uh, uh, it's a turning from their false belief to the one true God uh, and to the promise of, of the Messiah. So I want to make sure we we have time to talk about verse 47, because in these oracles of judgment, it's it's good to see a verse like 47 where you have a, a promise from the Lord. So we got about eight and a half minutes, Pastor Pastor Wargal. Let's let's pick up what's in verses 40 through 46 that we need to see in terms of the judgment that the Lord has here at the end of this section before we pick up 47 to close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Exactly. So uh, in 40, he talks about this judgment kind of as a swift eagle. This will be used in... Uh, the uh, next chapter when talking about Edom as well. Um, but again, it's just kind of this continual dis- dis- description of the destruction of Moab and, and the utter destruction, um, inescapable destruction even. And, and there's this, uh, when we get to um, 43 and 44, uh, this is another, uh, this is used in Isaiah as well. This imagery is used as Isaiah uh, in Isaiah 24 with this idea of the, of the the snare, the terror, the pit, and the snare, right? So it's this idea that you can't escape this. If you're going to get out of the terror, you're going to end up in the pit. If you get out of the pit, you're going to end up in the snare. Um, and, and so um, ultimately, it, it's the idea that that Moab, by its own strength, is not going to come out of this, right? They're not going to be able to, to, to ultimately win the day. Such is the utter and inescapable uh, judgment of God. Uh, and then it goes on to talk about Heshbon, uh, the shadow of Heshbon. That's a way of describing um, uh, the protection idea of using the term uh, shadow as protection. Uh, but Heshbon, uh, we see also in the prophecy of uh, uh, earlier in the prophecy of Moab, when we talked about in verse two, um, so that uh, in Heshbon, they plan disaster against Moab. Uh, so there in verse two, we spoke of that plan agreed upon by the enemies. And here we see the kind of the final effects of this plan. So it, it, it's kind of a way of the prophecy of coming full circle, uh, which we saw in verse two, then kind of coming even more so than when we get to verse uh, 45. So, so again, we're getting this utter uh, description. It seems repetitious, but it's really important. Each one kind of has its own facet, and especially when you get into um, as well into uh, 40, 45 and, and, and 46, the idea that the crown, 
the forehead, the crown, the very head of Moab uh, is going to be destroyed. It's this idea of the total destruction, the completeness of the destruction, and how that uh, the effects of that go into the sons and the daughters taken into to captivity. And that's when we kind of come to, to the point then where, and, and this is a beautiful thing about prophecy and, and the prophecies of Jeremiah, Isaiah, a lot of times when you see this, it doesn't, it's not like a one for one kind of thing, right? So you have uh, one verse of law and one verse of gospel. So we had how many right. verses of just utter law preaching of, of descriptions and understandings about, about the judgment of God. And then you can just have one verse and there is your gospel. And just in that little seed and kernel of the gospel, you have the answer for all of that destruction language and and judgment language the final solution the final way that how do we understand all of that we understand that god's proper work is in the restoring of the fortune of moab and it's kind of interesting as you go through that and says just it just goes into 47 yet right just one word yet of all this will take place yet i will god will restore the fortunes of moab in the latter days declares the lord um and and, and there we see we always have to understand how is the Lord re- restoring the fortunes of Moab. I think if it hasn't been mentioned already earlier about Moab, but we need to mention now, when we think of Moab, you need to think of Ruth. And if you think of Ruth, you think of the descendant of the seed, right? One of the ones that um, is in the long line of the Messiah. And that is how God restores the fortunes of Moab. Not necessarily in, 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 in a nation east of the, of, the, of the Dead Sea. That's not what we're talking about here, but we're talking about the remnant, the people, the the people of of of, of uh, Moab who turn and trust in the Lord and trust in the Messiah, the one who would come, so that descendants of Moab uh, will be the ones that will be included in the plan of salvation. They're the ones that uh, will be included uh, that are are predestined that 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 that's the that receive the grace of God. Um, and ultimately, we see uh, we see that grace of God in Christ. And what I like to say is, how, how does that tie in? Uh, really, it ties into Matthew twenty eight, right? That when Jesus uh, d- Jesus died for the Moabites as well as for the Israelites, that He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, as John the Baptist says. Uh, and the Moabites are also then included uh, uh, in uh, our Lord's mandate to go and make disciples of of all nations, not, not, not of a specific nation of Moab, like, cause that by the time of our Lord, that nation had been dispersed and by the Babylonians, but that they're included in that, right. Their lineage is included in that all nations means all nations and all nations uh, are included in our Lord's mandate to make disciples, to baptize in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit and teaching them to observe uh, all that he has commanded. And, and so, so they're included in that because Salvation isn't simply for Israel and Judah. Salvation is for all those who turn and trust in the Lord and receive from him the free, full full forgiveness of sins. I love the connection that you make to Ruth there. And I think that's that's spot on to see in, you know, in this one who does trace his lineage to a, a Moabitess. So we see salvation for Moab, how through our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, he fulfills this promise here in, in Jeremiah chapter 48. And and I appreciate how you said, you know, look, in just this one verse, we, we've gotten all this law, which I mean, there, there's Jeremiah in a nutshell for you, right? All this law. And there's just these little nuggets of gospel, yet they're so full 
of the promises of the Lord. And this one is is no exception. And I was, you know, really focusing on those words in verse 47, in the latter days. You know, I mean, and and how that calls to mind that repeated refrain that we've heard at, at various points in Jeremiah, you know, behold, the days are coming, which of course Jeremiah is not the only prophet who uses that way, but but Jeremiah particularly will, you know, we'll talk about the days are coming when the righteous branch from David is brought forth, when the new covenant is made in the Lord's name. I mean, so those latter days, there's a, there's a pointing to Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and I think also when I comparing and contrasting the way verse 46 reads with verse 47, particularly the way that Jeremiah refers to the people of Moab as the people of Chemosh. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens to the people of Chemosh? They're undone. They're taken captive. But what happens to the people of the Lord, the people of Yahweh? I mean, there you go back to the Old Testament, the the Exodus promise, where the Lord, what does he want? He wants for Israel to be his people, and he wants to be their God. And and so what happens to the people of false gods? Well, they're undone. They're taken into captivity. But what what happens to the people of the Lord? They're restored. And and that restoration happens in in Jesus Christ. Uh, Pastor Rorgo, just about a minute here to, to wrap things up on Jeremiah 48 this morning. Yeah, I, I think we've. Yeah, it's 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 just important again. I guess to continue to see um, that the point of all this judgment language uh, is, first of all, declare the justice of God. Right. So he's not a god. He's a jealous god. He's not a god who will share uh, Moab or Israel or any uh, any people with a false god, and that his judgments are are just. However, God's uh, judgment and God's word of, of law and, and and all that we see here is always to serve. God punishes so that He can so that so that He can restore. Uh, he punishes so that uh, we realize the depth of our sins and turn and trust in Him as the only place uh, and the only one that we can flee to for for security and for for refuge. And so, what's true for Moab and what we'll see is true for the judgments of Ammon, uh, as well as uh, Edom and all the other. Nations, as we go through these, it can kind of seem repetitive. It can kind of seem uh, like a downer. Uh, but what the really important message that we need to say is that, yes, God is just, but God is also the justifier of all who trust in Christ. And, and that, again, language really shines forth in 47. Pastor Sam Wergau is the pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 48, verses 11 to 47. Pastor Wergau, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, always a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app. The open mic feature allows you to send up to a 60-second message. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.